Hey there, welcome back to the Christopher Governator Show. And tonight we have a special treat. It is going to be a Gaia show. We haven't done a Gaia show for a while. So this is called Rise and Fall of the Wise Women. History and ancient texts point to a time when women were worshipped and entrusted with secret teachings holding influential positions of power. If this knowledge is allowed to flourish, could there be a rise of wise women in the future? And if so, might this also pave the way to a time when patriarchy and matriarchy rule together? Featuring Andrew Collins, Graham Hancock, uh, Freddie Silva, Sean Stone, William Bramley, Graham Sear. What's the rise of the fall? I strongly recommend get your own Gaia subscription. It's pretty awesome. Pretty awesome to stuff. Twelve bucks a month. Best programming in the universe. Okay, wait. The goddess of old Europe and ancient Crete represented the unity of life and nature. Delight in the diversity of form. Powers of birth, death, and regeneration. Carol P. Christ. The idea that there have been ages where women once ruled is not new. Archaeologists yeah, have found evidence pointing to several examples of societies that were matriarchal. <laughs> and yet, for many mainstream historians, party, this concept is still unsettling. In a 2017 study, a team of scientists led by archaeologist Douglas Kennett of Pennsylvania State University found evidence of a matrilineal society in New Mexico's Chaco Canyon. Uh -huh. The remains of 14 women were discovered beneath a dazzling cache of more than 15,000 turquoise necklaces and pieces of shell jewelry. The remnants of these women were found in an elite series of burial chambers that marked them as among the most noble members of Chacoan society. And astoundingly, under closer examination, it was revealed that no fewer than nine of the individuals shared the exact same matrilineal DNA, which is passed only from mother to child, concluding that power and influence was passed down through the female line. Archaeologists are now finding that there have been many ancient cultures that once worshipped female deities. There clearly was a time in remote antiquity when the feminine, the female, was regarded as the single most important aspect of humanity. And, and you have, going back at least 30,000 years, deep into the Upper Paleolithic, you have these, they're referred to as goddess figures. These are large-breasted, large-hipped female figures. Um, they're the dominant iconography of that period. And that, and that iconography continues all the way down through the Upper Paleolithic and into the Neolithic. There was a time when our ancestors venerated the goddess, not the male god. In places like Central Asia and Siberia, where the, the female shaman, or shamaness if you wish, uh, was 
one of the great power sources and obviously the different saints and, and holy women of places like uh, China and, and, um, and India um, and within other societies like North tradition where, where you know the very fierce shield maidens and things like this that, that would go out in battle and be more powerful than the many men but probably the last vestige of this female role came down to us through Greek tradition as the, as the Amazon. These incredible um, warriors, this warrior caste that supposedly only contained females. The Amazons weren't a single tribe though. They seemed to be a buzzword for a number of different female societies that that survived in various parts of the ancient world. For instance, there were Amazons uh, in the Sahara. There's lots of stories to do with their, their great deeds there. There were Amazons in the area of the Caucasus, what today is Georgia, you know, the Russian steppes. There were others in the Urals and the, and the Altai Mountains. Um, so they weren't necessarily all one tribe, but what they seemed to represent was the last vestige of this this female caste that were the rulers, if you like, of their domain, uh, of their world. Uh, and it was something that they did without the necessity of men other than for reproduction purposes. I think that the key to understanding this is that the role of the female in the past was much, much more powerful, much more stronger than we give it credit for. And it could well be that when we look at the, the builders of Gebekli Tepe or the Anunnaki um, or those who built Stonehenge were mainly female priesthoods. And it's difficult to even conceive of it in a way. But it is strongly possible, so we should never rule it out. And we should always be genderless as far as those ancestors who gave us this legacy of the ancient wisdom. Could it be possible that references in ancient texts allude to a mother goddess before the first civilization? When we take a look at the first chapters from the book of Genesis about the creation, the garden, etc., many events are not in the biblical texts. Sumerian texts give incredible additional information whether it is in Gnostic ones or in the Enuma Elish, which is the Babylon text about the creation. What's interesting is that they all mention a mother goddess that comes from the depths. Sophia is the mother of the abyss because, as the story goes, she went to the deepest point of the abyss in order to create the world as we know it. In Gnostic, Sumerian, even Egyptian texts, the abyss is always linked to the process of creation. All mother goddesses were. Sophia really comes from a, a Greek term, sophis, which means wisdom. In the beginning, before there was even a god or a creative force, uh, everything was dark, nothing existed. And because god and wisdom and knowledge are simultaneous with each other, they figured, well, 
If that's the case, then wisdom must have existed in the dark. And in order for it to be procreative, it had to be feminine. So they created this concept of a divine feminine person, a woman, who embodied the whole perfection of the wisdom and all the sum knowledge of everything that exists in the universe. So the Greeks show up and they called her Sophia, based on Sophis, the uh, term for wisdom. If wisdom emerged from the darkness and its procreative nature was feminine by some early accounts, then why at some point was it forgotten or switched? In the biblical stories of the Garden of Eden, Yahweh, or God, forbids the humans in the garden to partake from the forbidden tree of knowledge. When a serpent seduces Eve to eat an apple from this tree, it leads to mankind's expulsion from the garden and thereby from eternal life. But according to Anton Parks, the Sumerian texts interpret this story differently. They suggest that the serpent approaches the woman as if she is the teacher. In the book of Genesis, we know that before patriarchy came about, there was a matriarchy. When these gods arrive on Earth and settle in Eden on Karsuk Mountain, they were all under a matriarchal system, and Enma was their queen. The very interesting tablets of Eden express that. The woman is collecting fruits for the colony, and we understand that the man was doing more manual work. The text states that the secret was given by the serpent. The serpent tells the woman, and then she goes to tell the man. The so-called secret that the serpent is going to tell the woman, found in Sumerian tablets, is the secret of tool making. Quite simply, the tool, which is expressed as niche in Sumerian, means tree and tool. One could wonder why Inki insists on getting this particular secret through to the humans. Well, he has a desire to set them free. It is very clear. You can see it well. He wants to liberate them. I think that he didn't enjoy watching slaves working in the fields, serving in Leo. The woman's intelligence is often mentioned in Gnostic texts about the garden. The woman is generally wise, intelligent. She is enlightened from motherhood, from the origins, and has the intelligence and the wisdom of the serpent. If we read the original Sumerian texts, the woman only passes on the information that was given to her by the serpent. This civilizing tool for mankind is to become self-sufficient and free itself from slavery. What's more, in Sumerian tablets of Eden, when the woman messenger is mentioned, she is very often called the wise woman. If there was a wise woman, where did she disappear to? Researchers like Freddie Silva have discovered that other stories that empower women in ancient evolution have been omitted from the Bible. One of the greatest examples of the uh, shift from uh, matriarchal to patriarchal society really involves around the story of Jesus, believe it or not. Uh, it's a huge misconstruct, and uh, we know this because two of the most important pieces of evidence, which were the uh, Gospels of Philip and Thomas, were banned by the church until they were inconveniently found by two goat herders in the desert of Nakamadi. And the idea was that when you joined a secret mysticism school, you joined as a son of a woman. When you graduated from that, you went up to another level of understanding. You graduated as a son of a man. If you got to the next stage, you became son of the gods, and 
then, and this is the most interesting part, when you actually went into the final initiation process, and initiation means to become conscious, that's what the word means, you undertook an uh, out-of-body experience. It was an induced near-death experience where you took a narcotic, almost like a poison, which lowers your heartbeat down to a point where you are virtually comatose. Back in those days, those sects held uh, that the women had the highest level of initiation. They actually were responsible for the initiates while he or she undertook this out-of-body experience. They were called the bees or the watchtower of the flock, which is actually Mary Magdalene's uh, name, uh, Magdal Eber, the watchtower of the flock. Your soul leaves the body anywhere between three to seven days, and you come back into your body, a little bit groggy, and you are taken out by the priestesses uh, onto a mound, and the first thing you see is the rising of Venus, the morning star, at the spring equinox. That's why Jesus compares himself to the morning star. So did Osiris in Egypt, who is also a disembodied man who gets chopped up by 72 people. Of course, he reconstitutes himself, which is the symbol of the resurrected inner human being. The shift from uh, matriarchal to patriarchal really happens around the time when the Catholic Church is beginning to find its roots, uh, when fundamental Christianity splits from Gnostic Christianity, and the fundamentalists were killing all the Gnostic Christians. Could it really be true that details about the ages of matriarchal rule were censored from some ancient text? Freddie Silva has discovered a similar text to the Gnostic story about Mary Magdalene that is written in the Quran. Two most important people, John the Baptist and Mary Magdalene, are basically given very minor roles in the Bible. And now we know why. Because we have the patriarchal system that takes away the concept of the uh, matriarchal being the most important part of initiation. And then they went off and killed everybody around the Middle East that could say otherwise. That's the one thing that they, all the sects have in common, including early Islam, by the way, that says exactly the same thing, that the actual crucifixion didn't really take place, and the person that actually was crucified in the real event was actually not Jesus. It was a guy called Simon of Cyrene. This is the, you know, the Quran saying this. So the church annihilates everybody else that was saying the complete opposite, and that's why we've now have a patriarchal system instead of a matriarchal system. So that's how easily this concept gets taken apart. I think in the past, female cultures have been given a, a bad press. We know about kingship, we know about great battles fought by men, and we know that whole civilizations seem to be focused around patriarchal societies. But clearly that was not the case in prehistoric times. It would seem as if the female had a much stronger role in society. It may even have been the controlling influences governing the places of power which would have been seen as the axis mundi, the, 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 the axis of the earth, uh, possibly even having a seat of power, you know, the origin of what we would call the throne today. So in many ways they were the first kings. They were the embodiment of life itself. From them all life came, of course, as it's only women that can bear children. And this was understood by men, um, recognised and honoured by men who had a different role in life. I mean, as to exactly what that was, we don't want to stereotype any of these images. But something changed over time 
If this is indeed true, what has changed since the early ages where a matriarchal society governed our planet peacefully? Anton Parks believes that the rise of patriarchy began when humans decided to go out on their own and start building cities. According to his research, the Sumerian texts show us how the war between Enki and Enlil is reflected in the origin of the struggle for power between men and women. If you try to distinguish between the two energies that drive matriarchy and patriarchy, we can find it in all the texts that speak of this. It is constantly the fight between Mars and Venus, war and peace, finding a balance between the two. With my research on Sumerian Eden, I found a historical event. We are not speaking about legends here, but of the history of Sumeria. It is about the two cities who are fighting each other. Both of them were part of the realm of Uma. The two towns were situated in front of the realm of Serbula, which means the bird of eternal youth. The Serbula realm is led by Enlil. If you translate the Sumerian term Uma Na, you get the following definition. The people of Uma were the people of the wise woman, because Uma means the wise woman in Sumerian. Here's the idea of wise woman again, of the woman who passed down the secret. Thanks to this definition, we understand that Uma was under the guardianship of some goddesses that were associated with Inki and with the knowledge of the gods, because in French, a wise woman, literally, sage femme, is a midwife. And for Sumerians, it is the woman in charge of the genetics, the one in charge of the artificial matrices. The play on words is between sage femme, midwife, and femme sage, wise woman. Therefore, it is the realm led by the mother goddess and Inki. Between the two realms is a stretch of land, a palm grove. It is a sort of small garden called the Gu Adina. This can be translated as the frontier of the plain. In this historical battle between the two realms, we find many elements that can be linked to the Sumerian Eden. Through this story, we understand that the dispute between Inki and Enlil never really had an end. Even if you study the text very thoroughly, it is impossible to know what put an end to these conflicts between Uma and Serbula. The one thing we know is that one city of Uma was wiped out quickly. Kings always mentioned the divine protection given by Enlil and his son in royal texts, always reducing the inhabitants of Uma to simple workers that were only good to serve the realm of Lagash and to submit to the patriarchal gods. Could there be more evidence of this throughout history? About 5,000 years ago, when you get the emergence of, at least in our timeline, of the first, the first great cities. And that seems to be when this testosterone-driven male aggression and anger start to take everything over, and the, and the goddesses phase. And we still have goddesses, but they're not running the world anymore the way they appear to have done in much more, in much more ancient times. There's a clear change of emphasis, and we start having male gods, and they're often very angry you know, aggressive and domineering male gods, and they want to go take other people's stuff. It's as though some sort of mental virus has entered the world, and, 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 and we've become these creatures fizzing with testosterone, making war upon one another. You'd be hard put to find evidence of warfare in the Upper Paleolithic when the goddess ruled the world.
there was no there was no warfare these people they were hunting animals but they weren't killing each other not in large numbers at any rate they may have had the odd fight but they weren't they weren't making war upon one another but you come down into the neolithic as we begin to see the goddess cult trailing off and male gods taking their place and uh, warfare becomes a very key element of of human behavior um and so i think that i think that an old ethic and an old way of doing things which was harmonious and and beautiful and was sustained for tens of thousands of years um was overthrown by the upsurge of the male ego uh, and i would tie that very much at its worst to the the time of the emergence of the of the first cities you know from in in our historical timeline ancient sumer for example as patriarchy took over matriarchy women lost their place in society their role as goddesses and spiritual leaders was undermined by a new perspective women were indoctrined as untrustworthy seductresses Sean Stone describes how this point of view marked an era of separation between men and women. In the old tradition was really a joint male-female partnership over the course of Sumerian time we recognize that Anki seems to have been considered more of that that trickster character more of the devil in the garden who essentially gives humans knowledge when Anki gives humans the right to procreate with each other. without the permission of the gods that's when only on the other gods feel that their reign is being threatened by the humans so anki seems to have become the devil he's cast in the devil role and perhaps women as well as a result because that whole concept of men and women anki and inma working together to to fashion humankind is lost so by the time you come to the jewish tradition for example you've lost any notion of uh, a female role in the spirituality of the religion the god jehovah is a male god you see no female rabbis in any jewish tradition until about the 16th 17th centuries same obviously within the catholic church the notion that there really could be no female pope female cardinals or bishops it's a very masculine control of the religious inclination another important example of the complete takeover of society by patriarchs has occurred by the time of the Greek civilization basically by 500 BC and thereafter all the way through Rome women are second class citizens they have no right to vote they have no real voice in anything beyond the household they are essentially outside of the society you can see basically step by step this descent away from a notion of a man and woman working in conjunction to fashion humanity to essentially guide humanity it becomes more and more the assertion of the male energy uh the male totem basically and that ultimately i would say manifests itself in the overall nature of our society if you look at what tesla was looking for example at the nature the nature of energy creation and production he was pointing out that what we have is explosive energy which is male uh it's basically male exertion uh whereas the female energy is considered more vertical so only a few of the scientists that were looking into alternative forms of energy that basically was more vertical what people describe by ufo craft for example 
and the way that their propulsion systems work, that is essentially a female style of energy where it ideally recycles itself. When you look at the origins of warfare, and this is organized warfare, you don't actually find any good evidence for it until somewhere roughly between about 9,000 and 6,000 BC. That's when real organized warfare seemed to start. And of course, that was after the Neolithic Revolution. Prior to that, yeah, you do find occasional skeletons showing signs of violence, you know, just individual human against human violence. I mean, it's always been that. But this whole thing about humans actually organizing into armies and getting together in groups and then let's go charge against this other group and then the other group having to then respond in the same way by forming their own little army, that didn't actually happen until after the Neolithic by most accounts. We talked about the Gnostic tradition and this issue of precisely who created the reality. Was it the male god, the male demiurge who fashioned the world or was it the Sophia spirit, divine spirit, wisdom, who came into the reality. And I think that the darker interpretations have oftentimes given onus and power to the male form, whereas the older traditions might actually re recognize and respect the fact that it was male and female working in conjunction and unison to really create the human existence. Take, for example, the Anunnaki stories about Anki. Anki was this chief scientist who was trying to design the human race on behalf of the sky gods. But in order to do so, he needed Ninma, who was basically his partner and consort. Looking back to Sumerian times, civilizations of war seemed to be preceded and followed by civilizations of peace. Perhaps it's possible that humanity will embrace again a future cycle of matriarchy? A society where we become more cooperative and less aggressive? I like to look at statistics and evidence. And Steven Pinker wrote a very interesting book called The Bitter Angels of Our Nature. And he did a long-term study showing that Contrary to the images we're getting on TV of the warfare, and of course the images we're getting are very real. We need to solve that. They're very important issues that we need to deal with. But overall, statistically, warfare has been declining over a fairly long period. So we're seeing this general progression of a generally less violent, less warlike global society. But corresponding with that is we've seen the role of women increase during the same period of time. I believe that there's a relationship between that. I think the more that women have a role in governance and equality, we're gonna see more of that trend happen. Because back in the days, going back much earlier, when we didn't really have organized human warfare, they were much more matriarchal. So shifting the power balance to patriarchy there are probably all kinds of biological reasons for that. They were the ones who had to go out and hunt the uh, mastodon while the woman is giving life. And so that shift between what we have in our DNA as men and as women because of that old role probably then affects the level of violence in our, in our society. The disappearing wise woman to me refers to our loss of 
intuition, our heart intelligence, which should be our guiding light. To be whole, we need both intuition and logic, which is kind of the feminine and the masculine principles. You need some structure to your intuition, or else you kind of, you could get delusional without some structure. We've been cut off from the heart intelligence, and all we have is this logical, rational, egoic mind. And that's when we start really going down the path of error. But I do believe there's signs now that we're starting to hopefully correct the situation as more and more people are, you know, returning to that, to that kind of inner voice, you know, that voice, that the light of conscience, really. It's the light of conscience. I think we'll get back to a state of wholeness. If wholeness is the meaning of joint feminine and masculine energies in the world ruling by partnership, then what is our next step? Could ancient history lead us down a new path of thinking? If we, as the current civilization, are indeed returning to our inner voice, then could this inner voice be leading us to a much older civilization that has now just emerged from the ice? You get reports occasionally of structures emerging out of the ice at Antarctica. Just recently there was one which took my attention to do with what was described as almost like an embanked area, like a hill fault uh, that was found. And that struck my attention as being different to all the other stories. Anybody who's a pure-blooded Indian or native person in the Americas, their whole haplogroup or genetics are A, B, C, or D. But we've tested three of these so far, and they are not A, B, C, or D. They show ancestry either from Europe or the Middle East or the Middle East people who moved to Europe. So that completely blows the theory that there was only one way to get to the Americas in pre-Columbian times. Could new evidence of a civilization much older than that discovered at Gobekli Tepe be emerging from a desolate continent? Up next, the code unravels, or should we say, melts, from Antarctica to reveal a possible new species on this planet. Center published their discovery of a valley the size of the Grand Canyon in West Antarctica. Despite being covered beneath several kilometers of ice, the depression was so vast that it could be seen from space. Some theorists were quick to conclude that before the Great Ice Age, Antarctica, like the six other continents, was likely to have been home 
to ancient civilizations. Dr. Ross eloquently summarized that the implications of his research serve merely to demonstrate how much we still have to discover about our planet. But could it be possible that there are perhaps older than Gobekli Tepe to be discovered deep beneath the glaciers? One of the consequences of global warming is that the ice on the poles, including Antarctica, and the, the thickness of the ice as it is reduced allows greater visibility from So we can see what's underneath the ice. One of the surprises is that the satellite images are sending back now what appear to be large-scale, complex archaeological sites. They're, they're not small hunting villages and pit houses. These look like advanced technological civilizations that we're seeing underneath the ice. One of the reasons that this is a problem for historians is because the ice sheet in, uh, in Antarctica uh, originated most recently. We've had multiple ice sheets, the most recent, about 20,000 years ago. And that opens the door to the question, who was here 20,000 years ago to build complex archaeological structures on the continent of Antarctica? And what role does that play in the history of the mythology? Uh, it's almost universal of ancient civilizations. It may be what we now see is the six cradles of civilization very soon will expand to at least seven, possibly four. You get reports occasionally of structures being found emerging out of the ice at Antarctica. Just recently there was one which took my attention to do with what was described as almost like an embanked area, uh, like a hill fault uh, that was found. And that struck my attention as being different to all the other stories. Um, and this raises my hopes that these settlements did actually exist. I think this matter should be looked into more. The only problem is, can we interest archaeologists to spend good money to go to Antarctica to investigate these sites. I think it's possible that as the ice starts to melt in Antarctica, which it is doing more and more, that it will reveal structures. And if this is the case, those structures have probably been buried in the ice for tens of thousands of years. So these are going to be very, very ancient indeed. Uh, and they could easily be the product of hybrid descendants. But who could these descendants be? Researchers like Billy Carson lead us to some new theories on Antarctica and its current location. Antarctica had once been a tropical island, and that was the center of the so-called pre-Adamite civilization. And it got moved to what's now the South Pole. There might have been some kind of nuclear war that took place on Earth. That's entirely possible. Or there could have been some energetic release from the sun. The resulting effect appears to be that the Atlantean flood becomes the Atlantean glacier. And because it's now in a new position where the water freezes, it turns into Antarctica. If structures from a pre-Adamite culture might exist below the ice, who are these beings that did not survive a cataclysm? Or did they? We don't remember where we came from. 
we don't remember that we were essentially a seeded, genetically created race to be able to inherit the earth. And what's interesting is the descendants of the pre-Adamites, the people who were here before the flood, the people who actually messed up, and apparently the Elohim voluntarily let this flood happen to largely wipe out the pre-Adamites on earth. So these pre-Adamites, some of them, apparently still exist. They still have elongated skulls and they still believe that they are the gods and that we are essentially an invading civilization. And then this new group gets sent in, the Adam, or the modern human form that we all are, with new DNA, genetically modified, tinkered, and sent down here, intended for the spiritual expression of humans to come out. And these pre-Adamite beings became very upset about this. After a great cataclysm that occurred about 12,800 years ago, the survivors of this pre-Adamite group were spread out all across the earth, and they had no way to communicate with each other. So the survivors of this group, which were not pre-Adamite bloodlines, they have been mixed and spliced with local humans, and they became a totally different species. Could it really be true that there was once an unknown civilization of ancient beings in Antarctica? In 1929, a map was discovered inside Istanbul's Tokapi Palace, depicting Antarctica before it was covered with ice. Archaeologists have been able to carbon date the map's creation back to a Turkish admiral and cartographer named Harry Rees, who plotted it in 1513. This age was hundreds of years before the continent was discovered by modern man. Rees's map has both conventional and alternative scholars flummoxed. Where did he gather his knowledge? indeed Antarctica, is it possible that our true origins date back to a prehistoric seafaring civilization? While mainstream scientists are resistant to get behind these findings, no other explanation for the mysteries this map presents have been offered. But with global warming exposing new topography under the glaciers, harder evidence may be just around the corner. We are about to hear from official sources architecture has been located in Antarctica that will confirm there was in fact intelligently built ruins down there and that would be a world-changing thing of significance. This Atlantean legend has an incredible amount of provable data behind it and if we do get the disclosure that we're being promised this is going to become an open public acknowledged thing that there are in fact stone monuments under the ice in Antarctica that are very ancient. If that happens everything that we thought we knew about human history has to be rewritten and we are now dealing with an ancient civilization far predating those which we now acknowledge to be true. Most academics believe that all Native American people, no matter where you find them, that all of their ancestors came across the Bering Land Bridge and that they all only had four genotypes, A, B, C, and D. Anybody who's a pure-blooded Indian or Native person in the Americas their whole haplogroup or genetics are A, B, C, or D. But we've tested three of these so far, and they are not A, B, C, or D. They show ancestry either from Europe, or the Middle East, or the Middle East people who moved to Europe. So that completely blows the theory that there was only one way to get to the Americas in pre-Columbian times. It means that people were sailing the oceans thousands to be able to circumnavigate the planet. Long before the Vikings, we've been taught so little in school about the 
these beings are not of a human or a Neanderthal or Cro-Magnon DNA at all. That it's actually an entirely different being. And so I think the jury's still out as far as when exactly these beings came, when exactly they are. If they did evolve on Earth and were some sort of lost tribe of the human species, or if they really are indication of the Anunnaki gods, the ones who came from the sky to Earth. And again, it, it plays into this overall mythology of the fall of Mount Hermon, of the 300 Watchers, um, whether that's in the Bible or the Anunnaki tradition of Anki and Neil and their families coming and creating humans and mixing their DNA with ours. Perhaps these elongated skulls are evidence of those gods of the ancient world. of these people could be incredibly complicated. 
official DNA results indicated that at least part of their bloodline is not Native American whatsoever. Um, so we're, we're looking at the possibility that part of their ancestry is from the Middle East, which means they did not cross the very language like all other Native Americans' uh, ancestors supposedly did. And that would be a major historical discovery. I've been studying these, these people for about eight to 10 years. It seems that only the nobility of the Paracas culture of the coast of Peru had elongated skulls. And the preservation in that area is almost perfect. So we do have examples of the skulls with hair. And the hair is always red. And it's genetic red. It's not the result of bleaching or, or the sun or something like that. And so red hair originates in the Middle East, in Iraq, Iran, and Afghanistan. So if they have red hair, they likely have light-colored skin, as well, possibly, as green or blue eyes. All three of those characteristics are not typical of Native American people. So that could very well indicate that those ancestors sailed from the Middle East to the coast of Peru. In 1928, in a desert on the Paracas Peninsula on the south coast of Peru, archaeologist Julio Tello unearthed a graveyard filled with the remains of corpses with the largest elongated skulls found anywhere in the world. Some were dated back as far as 3,000 years. This discovery shocked scientific communities because it challenged what had been recorded in Peruvian and human history. Tello's discovery has since become known as the Paracas skulls. And even more astoundingly, since 1928, other elongated skulls have been found. The oldest elongated skulls in the world have been discovered in Iraq, in one specific cave. And the initial DNA testing that we've been able to do indicates that these people had haplogroups, groups, which are either from Northern Europe or from the Middle East. What exactly they are will require rigorous scientific examination. We were able to do DNA testing of a baby that uh, died at 18 months and had strawberry blonde hair, which is not Native American. And the analysis that was done indicated that it had segments of DNA that do not match anything known to be human. And we also know that all ancestors of Native Americans, all of their ancestors are believed to have crossed the Bering Land Bridge from South or from Eastern Asia. So nobody from the Middle East or from Europe would walk across all of Asia in order to cross into North America. These ancient people had seafaring skills. They knew how to build boats and they knew how to sail thousands of years before the Vikings or Columbus or anyone like that. So it's quite likely that they migrated by sea through the Indian Ocean and then across the Pacific. Skeptics have long dismissed the validity of the remains found with elongated skulls as being scientific proof of pre-Adamites. They claim that these skulls are artificial, an objection made even more complicated by the fact that there have been tribes who practiced cranial deformation on infants. When it comes to the discovery of elongated heads, a lot of the mainstream scientists might shrug it off and say, well, this is an indication of binding. Massive heads, which doesn't quite make sense unless you actually did have 
might be more than that, but we don't really know. According to recent eyewitnesses, they have seen people with elongated skulls in places like London, in the Financial District, in New York, and in the Vatican. Is it possible that these ancient elites with elongated skulls are controlling our political and religious organizations? And if so, could this be a way of safeguarding some great secret? Perhaps something of unimaginable value hidden under the ice in Antarctica? Tom DeLong and a group of military people, including the head of Skunk Works, Lockheed Skunk Works, but they were going to come into this from the ancient past that the Anunnaki and the Greeks were extraterrestrials. There was another group working uh, allegedly with some of the astronauts who were saying that they've encountered UFOs and they were going to come into an announcement. I was told that the Vatican in Rome, Pope Francis, has been standing, waiting to collaborate with whichever of these groups would be the ones that would tell the truth or not love the universe. The Vatican is ready to stand up with whoever in the United States makes that announcement. Behind the scenes, uh, there was a Signora Balducci who said that uh, the Vatican had information about extraterrestrials and that there was a decision made in the beginning of the 90s that the Vatican it was, would support announcements of the existence of other life in the universe and say, this reinforces the size and the strength of God. What kind of information about ancient races on this planet and their connection to Antarctica might be the next reveal? Billy Carson describes Antarctica as a crash site from a nearby planet. About 55,000 to 60,000 years ago, a group of beings that originated from Mars may have crashed landed in Antarctica. This group happened to have very elongated skulls. Not only did they have elongated skulls, but they were about 14 feet tall and had very strange physiology. Researchers have stated that it is obvious that these beings did not develop on Earth, that they had developed in a different area where the barometric pressure was different, the gravitational fields were different, and it explains the differences in their physiology. The group have understood all of the science and built all of these pyramids right there on the island because they needed to tap into an energy source. So the pyramid is harnessing incredible energy. We see pyramids in Africa and there's pyramids in Sudan and all over the world. There are actually forgotten pyramids in Indonesia. So the pyramid is truly a worldwide phenomenon that completely defies anything that makes sense unless you are well read in Russian science towards the fields, the science of biology and active energy that will feed life and make life healthier and more vibrant. Because that's exactly what happened in the pyramids. Let's say that you inject a white laboratory mouse with a virus or a toxin that would normally cause a disease condition to develop in approximately 30% of the specimens. If you give them pyramid energy, instead of 30% mortality, you only get about 3% mortality. And even in cases where the white mice were given doses of toxins so high that 60% of them would die very quickly, only 6% of the mice died in the presence of the pyramid energy fields. There were experiments done with granite slabs that were stored in the pyramids and then positioned in the prisons. And all the prisons who had the granite in their cells suddenly had massive improvements in their behavior. They became friendlier, they became happier. The violence was significantly decreased and nothing else was done. It was really incredible.
because they were too powerful, um, maybe because the creatures that built them didn't want us to destroy ourselves with that technology. And maybe those areas, uh, if you go deep enough, have the kind of rock strata necessary in order to cause these vibrational frequencies to occur. If the pre-atomites existed and Antarctica was their base where they built powerful pyramids to affect the planet, how would revealing this now affect the world we live in today? But it does seem that this civilization would have been literally indestructible as we move into the final 12,000 years of this big cycle. So what appears to have happened is that, in fact, there was a judgment made to allow this flood to occur and that the flood not only sank the Atlantean continent, making it Antarctica, but it also did sink many of the areas of megalithic architecture, such as the gorgeous pyramid that we see in the Azores off the coast Stone Circle. 